This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and I'd like to welcome my co-host this morning. First of all, hailing from McPherson, Kansas, when asked what would Jesus do, he says Jesus is a salvation historical figure, not a hypothetical construct. He's an assistant. <laughs> he's a professor of English. Mr. David Grubbs, how are you doing, David? Oh, pretty dandy. And hailing from St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, when DC Talk told him love is a verb, he noted that in that very sentence, it's actually being used as a nominal. I actually, I've, I've actually made that point when I was in middle school. <laughs> <laughs> he is an assistant professor of English at Crown College, Mr. Michael Farmer. How are you doing, Michael? Yo, I'm flowing like a bottle of Drano. <laughs> I'll admit that's not one I'm familiar with. I <laughs> that's from love is a verb. Another way to explain no Cause you know when I'm flowing like a bottle of Drano Simple and plain L-O-V-E ain't all that Oh is it really? Well, we'll see, you, you can tell how much thought I've given to anything but the title Clearly, clearly <laughs> I like golden age Christian rap much better than you do Well I, I won't deny that Michael There was a golden age of Christian rap? I don't know <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking the other day how that album had a song called Two Honks and a Negro on it. It does indeed. That I do remember. Mm. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought, how did they let that by in 1992? We might yeah. want to reconsider the whole Golden Age thing here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, on the blog this week, we've got the regular Bible post. We've got the regular links post. We've also got Michael Farmer's interview with Chris Garrett's. It's sort of an interview slash album review on the latest Wilco. Uh, and Jayhawks. And, and, and Jayhawks. That's right. That's right. That's what I was having trouble conjuring. Um, as far as listener feedback, we actually got a fairly interesting email uh, from a gentleman. Do you guys remember his name? I'm calling it up right now on my computer. David? Are you talking about the, the cat from the Middle East? Yeah, that's the one. David, I have the email open that? right here. David, go. David, or Dave. He seems to go by Dave. Okay. He says uh, he listens to our podcast from the Middle East, which mm -hmm. is kind of exciting. I was wondering if you guys had thought of doing a podcast about Greg's Bo Greg Boyd's thesis that Greek philosophy negatively affected the theology of some of the early church fathers, be that Platonism or Stoicism. This is the central thesis in his forthcoming IVP work, now like twelve hundred pages, the myth of the blueprint. When okay. I read the anti anti not anti when I read the anti Nicene <laughs> fathers for myself, I noticed that Augustine's notions of double predestination were nowhere to be found amongst them. I feel that this is probably as attributable to his background of Manichaeism than to the influence slash interference of Greek philosophy. Another interesting character in this discussion would be Thomas Odin. I find him an interestingly contradictory character in his affirmation of early Christianity, thus reframing the Calvinist Arminian debate not as an issue of the Reformation, but rather looking at it as pre-Augustinian fathers versus Augustine, and the ensuing discussions around the Council of Orange and beyond. 
The reason I find him contradictory is how on some issues, predestination slash election slash nature of God's unconquerable will, he seems to be most informed by the pre-Augustinian thinkers, but as for other issues, he keeps the clock ticking up through the 1054 East-West split. Maybe I don't understand Odin well enough, but that's how I view his perspective and seems to explain why Eastern Orthodox friends, converts mostly, would cite him. To me, I continue mm-hmm. to find it oddly funny that my back-to-the-Reformation friends turn the clocks back only 450-odd years and know next to nothing about the earliest Christians thinking on these issues. Um, as you will know, if you go back and listen to, I think, our third episode, which is on the Church yes. Fathers, I am one of mm-hmm. these people who turns the clock back only 450-odd years and knows nothing about the uh, <laughs> the earliest Christians. I am working on that, but I uh, I am not. I am not at all capable of answering his question. Are you, Nathan? Right. Well, I see where his question comes from because we're always cracking wise about certain emergent writers who say that somehow early Christianity was influenced by this ominous force called Hellenism uh, <laughs> and how we tend to think that that's a reductionist hypothesis. Um, but, you know, as Michael said, you know, uh, I've got some background in the Latin church fathers, not a whole lot in the Greek church fathers. So, you know, I, I would second Michael in sending you back to the, to episode number three. It's still available on iTunes. Uh, take a listen to what we say there. And, you know, maybe someday we can do a fairly limited scope discussion on one of the church fathers and the influence of Stoicism, Platonism, so on and so forth. But as far as a broad based patristics episode i don't i well first of all we've already done one <laughs> but uh <laughs> as, as far as that particular question considered broadly uh like michael said I, I just don't have a whole lot of background david do you have anything to add to that yeah just the uh i i find it immensely flattering that he thinks we've got he thinks we've got the chops to do this yeah i <laughs> You know, I hadn't even thought it from the. I, I I was so overridden or overcome with anxiety that I <laughs> right. I didn't I didn't have time to be flattered. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's 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 actually really really flattering. I, I tend um, I tend to read oh. all uh, all feedback as uh, criticism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you, you could you could go about that way, but my way is happier. There you go. Uh, also on the blog, we've got some good feedback going on our recent uh, Greek tragedy episodes. This, of course, is the third of those episodes, and we're going to go ahead and launch into it. Uh, Michael, let, let's start it. Let's start out our discussion of Aeschylus uh, and Prometheus Bound, which you told me just before we started recording might not be authentic Aeschylus. That, we're going to go ahead anyway. New critical consensus. Well. Yes. Someone needed to tell me this back in the mid-90s when I read him and loved, loved Prometheus Bound. At any rate, um, start us out by telling us who Prometheus is in the first place. Uh, what did the old deity do to get himself in the trouble he gets in when Prometheus Bound gets rolling? Uh, how does the play bring the audience into this tragic moment? Well, the play opens with Hephaestus being forced by two characters named Power and Violence to forge these chains for Prometheus. Prometheus himself doesn't get to say a word until he's bound. Mm -hmm. But there has been a recent coup in heaven and Zeus has taken over. So he's the new god on the block. He he has instituted new rules that people think, some people think are unfair, and he has punished people who have insufficiently supported him. Well, Prometheus was once Zeus's friend. Zeus relied on him during this takeover. 
but he makes the crucial mistake of helping the humans. And the issue here is that Zeus could kind of care less about the humans. Um, he, he is interested in wiping them clean and starting over with a new race of humans. <laughs> but Prometheus helps them. And, I mean, everybody knows that he gives them fire, but he actually, if you read the play, gives them quite a bit more than fire. He gives mm-hmm. them numbers, he gives them writing, medicine, prophecy, a whole bunch of other stuff. He goes on for two or three pages about all the things he did for humans that made Zeus so incredibly angry. Mm-hmm. So because because Prometheus has helped the humans more than he has fulfilled his duty to Zeus, Zeus has chained him to the side of this cliff. Um, and because of that, he has our sympathy throughout the play, and he... Furthermore, he has the sympathy of most of the other characters. Only uh, Hermes, who shows up at the very end, and Power and Violence, who show up at the beginning, don't seem to care much for Prometheus. Everybody else he encounters is pretty much on his side about this. They, at the very least, feel like Zeus isn't being fair to him, even if they don't particularly like what he did to the humans. Mm-hmm. All right, to move on from there, David, the, the chorus and Prometheus do an awful lot of talking about Zeus in this play. Uh, but Zeus, among the gods, doesn't ever appear on the stage. Uh, what sorts of things does Aeschylus do in this text to bring Zeus, even in his bodily absence, into the drama? And what sorts of literary or other ambiguities result from that bodily absence? Well, first, while he's bodily absent, um, the the play is full of his agency. Uh, but it's through, it's through intermediaries. Uh, as Michael's already said... Uh, Hephaestus shows up uh, at the beginning as the son of Zeus, who is doing uh, doing the father's will, albeit begrudgingly, as well as uh, the the character of power and violence. Is that what your translation was, Michael? Yeah, they're called power. I, no, I use the I use kind of a newish translation by David R. Slavitt, so I think I think it's a little idiosyncratic. What are they, what are they called in the in the traditional translations? Uh, the one that I'm using is Elizabeth Barrett Browning's from the the 19 aughts, um, or at least a, an edition of, of Greek tragedy that was published in the 19 aughts, um, and she calls him strength and force. Interesting. I mean, she if, the, her translation can't be from the 19 aughts unless she wrote it while she was a ghost. Right, 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 right. I, I I don't I don't think it is. It's just that's the date that's on the book. I don't know when gotcha. she produced the translation. Strength, strengthen, strengthen what? What is she? strengthen force? Strength, strengthen force. So she takes which, much less uh, of a hard line about it, doesn't she? Well, it, it's it's much more ambiguous, right? Uh, when you when you refer to that character as as strength and force, uh, but it also, uh, at least to me as a reader, it it made it it characterized Zeus and the way he acts as. Uh, informed simply by those by those ideas of of strength and force not um not mitigated by uh by other things or other forms of uh getting his will done so to speak uh that strength and force is pretty much the way this Zeus goes uh which which ends up being power and violence <laughs> right um so his his agency is there. Uh, strength and force speaks uh, speaks often from the perspective of uh, that animated agency. 
Zeus is spoken of frequently by the chorus, um, the the varian, various ocean nymphs who seem to gather around Prometheus and and weep over him and exclaim over the uh, the the amazing tragedy of his suffering. And so that there, while while Zeus never gets to show up and actually speak his own piece, uh, there's an awful lot of talk about him. Um, he's he's characterized, you know, by various nouns. Among them, you know, he he's called implacable. Uh, his hate is frequently referred to. Uh, his his power, uh, he's uh, often re- referred to with. Uh, Epithets that were that ascribed to him uh, justice, but justice in the sense of a of a vengeance and, and more of a lack of a punishment with without mercy uh, seems mm-hmm. to be what is meant when when this justice is referred to. We see his history. Um, what Michael gave us as kind of the background of the story. Prometheus uh, describes that within the story, so we get a a sort of theobiography. Um. And then we have, uh, towards the end, we have uh, uh, Hermes show up, who is the the chosen messenger of Zeus. Uh, also, if I remember correctly, there's also various thunderings and stuff as it as it goes on. And like, did you hear that? Right, right. Uh, doesn't though Ze- I may doesn't be... Zeus toss him into the cavern at the end? I mean, you just, you just don't see Zeus, but. Um, no, I th- if I remember at the at at the end. Prometheus gets the last word, you know, look at how terrible my suffering is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the cavern, but frankly, I got, um, I, I'm because I read Prometheus bound and then I read Prometheus unbound. <laughs> um, I'm having an awful hard time separating the two since one by is one is by Elizabeth Barrett Browning the translation of Aeschylus is Elizabeth Barrett Browning and then Prometheus Unbound is Shelley. And so I've got these two, you know, 19th century voices (laughs) (laughs) competing in my head. And I'm honestly having a hard time uh, remembering which lines I got from which. How Um, do I love these from Elizabeth Barrett Browning? Let me count the ways. One, one thousand. Yeah. That is two, one thousand. Yeah, that didn't show up in Prometheus Bound. Um, very, very absent from Prometheus Bound. What ambiguities result from the absence? Um, well, one that, that that Zeus never gets to speak in his own defense or characterization or anything anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in 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 a lot of ways. Uh, as I was thinking of this question, I was thinking about. Um, uh, God is spoken of in the Hebrew Bible. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Well, in this case, Zeus is shown by His handiwork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Psalms, the the people of God uh, talk about God by telling the story of His mighty acts, and that's what Prometheus does. Um, now, what we don't get is um, moments of direct encounter with. Uh, with the divine presence and the divine voice, uh, getting to speak in, uh, in person, but, uh, other, otherwise it's that kind of reported story, um, effects that are then traced back to, um, this divine origin. 
Is that what you're looking for? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, one thing that I would add is that we also get a long scene with the character of Io in there. Uh, oh, which, right. Which, I mean, plays a strong parallel to what Prometheus is suffering because, you know, where Prometheus presents himself as one who is suffering because of his pity on humanity, uh, Io is one who is suffering really not because of any act of hers at all. It's simply because of her status as the object of Zeus's lust. Right. So, Wait, well, it just goes to show another... you, Ovid was right. It doesn't matter if the gods hate you or love you. If they notice you, you're really, really in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> at least in at least in the world of Prometheus Bound, that's the case. Right. Um, so, so it's it's more theobiography, except this is more the, uh, I don't know, the the tawdry tabloid theobiography. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I would say, you know, again, just another brief comment on the IO scene. I mean, that is, if there was any ambiguity about Prometheus's status as one who is wronged by a, an arbitrary and amoral force, the IO story just hammers that in unquestionably. Right. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's fascinating that the text goes there because it's not as if Zeus had a whole lot of supporters by the time IO shows up. Uh, but you know, by the time she gets on stage, you know, it's very, very clear what sort of deity we're dealing with. And again, you know, I, I, and I always go back to Plato's Republic, I realize, but you know, this just kind of reminds me why when we moderns read Plato and he talks about, you know, taking these stories about the gods out of the way where children can't see them, uh, he might've had a point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, if, as David said during our Euripides episode, if this is what being godly means, that mm-hmm. <laughs> we're all in trouble. Well, the di- the difference exactly. between Prometheus and Io is that there is an argument to be made that Prometheus, in some sense, deserves what he gets because he uh-huh. he, he does rebel, right? I mean, he he does he does neglect his duty to his leader. Io doesn't do mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. Yeah. Io has the misfortune of being raped by a god. Right. And that's not the worst thing that happens to her. So just, you know, imagine yeah. that for a while. Right, yeah. right. That's just the first step. Yeah. <laughs> that's the best part of her day. Oh, gosh. Well, anyway, hey. Michael, I mean, Prometheus himself, he is the undeniable bodily presence on the stage in this drama. Uh, but I mean, what makes this interesting is that he's not a mortal crushed under the heel of the gods, uh, like you're going to see in Euripides, but he is himself a suffering deity. And I mean, the, the phrase that came to my mind is even a crucified God because he actually is stretched out on the rock and exposed to the elements. Um, what kinds of, and again, I'm sort of obsessed with this idea of ambiguity, uh, what sorts of ambiguities would an audience in the Dionysian festival have experienced seeing this particular being as the suffering one in a tragedy? Well, the uh, first little background on that festival, it took place at the end of winter at the beginning of spring. And it celebrates a time when Athens rejected, you know, a legendary time, when Athens rejected the statue of Dionysus only to have a mysterious disease affect male genitalia all over the city and so they learned to never neglect the worship of Dionysus again so they worshipped him henceforth and had this festival mm-hmm. you know if there's one thing you're going to listen to right 
Yeah. <laughs> so the cost of not worshiping the gods, the cost of not doing your duty, is going to be on their mind in all likelihood, the Athenians' mind. Mm -hmm. uh, Dionysus himself is the illegitimate son of Zeus. His mother died, according to some legends, after seeing Zeus in his full glory. He himself is a suffering god because Hera sends these tight. Hera always jealous of uh, of Zeus s sends these titans to tear him to pieces, but he comes back to life. Um, he's also another god who demands allegiance with the threat of suffering, as does Zeus in this play. Um, mm -hmm. So you see that quite clearly in Euripides' Bacchae, or Bacchae, I, I still don't know how to pronounce that word. <laughs> but in that play, Dionysus and his worshippers take revenge on non-believers. So his cousin Pentheus rules Thebes. He he refuses to recognize Bacchus, or Dionysus's divinity. So he is lured into the woods where he is torn apart by the worshippers of Dionysus. So Athenian mm -hmm. audiences would have been attuned to divine suffering by, by the nature of being involved in this festival, but they also mm -hmm. would have been aware of the dangers of improper or insufficient worship, which is to some degree what this play is about. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, say a little bit more about that improper... Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, say a little bit more about how Prometheus is an instance of improper worship. Well, from Zeus's perspective, anyway, the issue is that he has failed to do his duty. He 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 owes his allegiance to Zeus, and he goes behind his back and helps the humans. So, from Zeus's perspective, Prometheus deserves what he gets. That that seems to, seems to be only Zeus's perspective, because even Hephaestus, who has to forge these chains says, I do not want to do this, he does not deserve this, and yet Hephaestus is a nice counterexample to Prometheus, right? Because Hephaestus doesn't want to do something, but he does it because it is his yeah. job. Prometheus uh -huh. refuses that. And he sees what happens if you cross Zeus. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Hephaestus has the advantage of, <laughs> of, of, uh, of learning from other people's mistakes. Prometheus yeah. doesn't quite have that advantage. Although certainly he, he would have seen what Zeus did to his own father. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and presumably Hephaestus remembers what Zeus did to him. Is this not the same Hephaestus who got kicked out of heaven for being ugly and ended up limping the rest of the time? I, I don't think I knew that part of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the one of the myths of Hephaestus that he was cast off of Mount Olympus, and that's why he's the limping god. I yeah. see. but he does get to make it with Aphrodite. Well, that Sometimes. was kind of the consolation prize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for what that's worth. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The fact that he had to stand in line to do so yeah. didn't but thrill him so much. Take it I was listening to, the, listening to the oldies radio station yesterday, and uh, Runaround Sue came on, and I was like, Aphrodite, <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. So, yeah. But, yeah, I I'm mean, the, the, the act of being at the, um, at the festival would have attuned people into divine suffering and to the penalties of ignoring divinity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well anyway david i, I want to start jumping forward in history as i like to do in these episodes if if aeschylus's <laughs> drama puts us before puts before the audience pardon me the core dilemma of polytheism namely that the gods can fight each other that they can suffer from each other uh that they are ultimately not ultimate uh if if this drama puts that in front of people um, the class of gods is a Gordian knot that later texts really have to cut, especially as 
uh, Platonic and then Stoic and then Christian monotheism become central theologies for, and I realize I'm using that term loosely in the Western <laughs> world. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the figure of Fortuna in Boethius, and if you want to, in any other text you want to bring in. Um, how does the the figure of Fortuna sort of cut that Gordian knot of divine providence, contingency on earth? What happens in a literary sense when bad fortune uh, becomes a sub-divine character? Mm. Well, first I'm, ha- I'm having to go off of memory because I realized to my chagrin um, that I had left both my copies of mo- both my copies of Constellation of Philosophy in my office. Oh. So, <laughs> so yeah, winging it. Um, Boethius uh, review for those who've read it before and. For those who haven't read it before, some some recap. Uh, Boethius, this uh, late Roman figure under the the reign of the the Goth Alaric, or sorry, not Alaric, um, uh, Theodoric. Yeah, Theodoric. I, I was I wanted to say Theophilus, but that ain't right. No, Theodoric. <laughs> um, I should get I should be able to get this one right. Um, uh, He's initially a, a very important figure. He's highly educated. He's wealthy. He's influential. He's powerful. And then through some political machinations, uh, which he denies that he had any, anything to do with, though, you know, who knows, uh, he ends up falling out of favor with the king and uh, in the end is, is, is executed. And the Consolation of Philosophy is a work that's written while Boethius uh, – contemplates his his loss of of all of his worldly goods um you know his wealth his position his reputation uh his freedom and initially is uh mourning these losses with the aid of the muses uh at which point the uh the, the figure of lady philosophy shows up and and says get out of here you dirty strumpets and <laughs> reminds Boethius that he is not, in fact, a poet and therefore shouldn't be, you know, sitting around all emo, um, but is a philosopher and therefore should be turning to the the wisdom that nursed him uh, in order to find consolation in the uh, in the suffering that he's in. And the scheme of the world that she lays out for him uh, appeals to to the idea that in the sublunary world in the world under the moon uh, the fortunes of of the world are governed by well fortune by fortuna mm-hmm. by uh, by chance by change and that she is by nature changeable it's 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 her job right, right. she gives things she takes things away uh, she does it uh, apparently, at random, without any logic, without any sense of who deserves what, um, and Boethius, by weeping about the loss of his earthly goods, is uh, basically complaining about someone who's just doing their job, um, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But uh, what Lady Philosophy uh, then goes on to do is to say that while Fortuna appears to be dealing good and evil willy-nilly and that all is chaos, that if we ascend to a grander scale, all the deeds of Fortuna are actually um, part of the the unsearchable out uh, working out of divine providence. 
so that this this apparently autonomous figure of chaos does in fact fit within a larger pattern of order, but one uh, one to which humans don't really uh, have access. Uh, they just know through philosophy, and then uh, I think implicitly theology too. That's that such a thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what that does in a literary sense is it means that Boethius can't really fight Fortuna. Right. He can't really rail against her. He can't. Uh, he can't complain, so to speak, because uh, she becomes the instrument of providence, but not of a providence that wants to wreak chaos, but of a providence that uh, that does have as um, as the goal uh, ultimate justice and ultimate good, um, not not the kind of arbitrary exercise of strength and force and power and violence. Uh, which we have in in Prometheus Bound, so that there is said to be a, a will and a plan back behind this randomness uh, that is good. And so, um, yeah, so Bo- Boethius should not be adopting a Prometheus pose. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And of course, I've, I've got to bring in Dante here, David. You know, as Dante is walking with Virgil through Inferno, uh, <laughs> Virgil, you know, borrows that from, or I guess Dante borrows it from Boethius. I, <laughs> Virgil seems so real. I want to make him a real person. Uh, <laughs> Virgil, Virgil is a real person, Nathan. He wrote well, the yes. he, he wrote the Aeneid. Okay, I yeah. want I want to make but... <laughs> I want to make Dante's Virgil a real real person, farmer. <laughs> and yeah. you knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, yeah, but I don't have anything know. to say about Boethius, so I jumped at the opportunity to hear my own there voice. You go. <laughs> mm. But uh, Dante does, you know, makes the same move when he talks about Fortuna as God's governor of the sublunary world, and you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that that I, I think you're absolutely right that you know that sort of idea that you are being wronged by the gods becomes an impossibility within that framework. You know, it's something where uh, Fortuna does not have malice so much as an inherently random nature, and even that randomness is providentially governed. So, you know, ultimately the uh, the ability to complain about one's fate uh, is sort of removed from the realm of possibility, literally speaking. Right. And incidentally, well, go ahead, David. My bad. Yeah. Well, and, and instead, the, the the wise person should do as you know at the end of the old English wanderer, in which. Fortuna is weird, yeah. Um, not W E I R D, right. but W Y R D. Right. The noun, not the adjective. Yes, weird. Um, you know, the the wise man uh, contemplating alone recognizes that all worldly goods ultimately pass. Friends are fleeting, and and wealth is fleeting, and power is fleeting. All these things are fleeting. Therefore, one should um, set one's security with, uh, with the father in heaven, because that's where security stands. Um, right. You know, one, one should set one's, uh, well, put one's treasure, uh, where things don't pass away. Right. So to speak. And just so we don't get, uh, any complaints about this in our comments, David, can you tell me how Vanna White relates to Boethius? Oh yeah. Um, fortunes, <laughs> the, 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 the change of fortune uh, i.e. the change that fortune uh, brings about 
is imaged as a wheel that uh, humans ride on, like a Ferris wheel, except it's like the least fun Ferris wheel. <laughs> well, that's actually um, saying something because I can't imagine well, a fun Ferris wheel. Well, it's okay. It's halfway fun and halfway tragic. So I yeah, guess there you it goes out and becomes just a normal Ferris wheel. Um, <laughs> if you're riding on the way up, you get the goods of the world, and so the the uh, the figure who's pictured on the top of a wheel of fortune has a crown on his head, mm-hmm. but um, the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. So, wow! In the end, you fall off. The crown falls off, and and the the wheel of fortune is always pictured uh, as you know, crowned heads on the top and on the bottom. There's a litter of paupers and bones. Um. And so, you know, you know that it, it shows up on, in, especially in in Arthurian literature. Um, Arthur actually has a vision of the wheel in mm-hmm. Mort d'Arthur before um, his final battle, but uh, he goes on to the final battle anyway. He doesn't abandon the wheel. He he keeps on riding. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's 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 uh, what that's what it has to do with the wheel of fortune. Um, and in some ways, I guess it's still. Uh, the the Pat Sajak Wheel of Fortune still has some relation to it. You <laughs> you spin, and then what you get is what you get. And um, except it, if that's the case, then it should be Vanna who's spinning it. Um, but she just kind of turns the letters. No, she doesn't. She just pushes a button. Now there's no there's no turning. Well, I haven't watched it since I was a kid. <laughs> that's because you're not in your sixties. <laughs> Uh, as oh, my as my as my in-laws are so be careful there my my parents are 59 <laughs> I, I went i went home a few years ago and they were watching they, they not only watch wheel of fortune they are members of the wheel club that's great i know i said i said well you guys are officially old <laughs> i was thinking it related to wheel of fortune because you'd have to buy so many uh vowels to spell boethius's name <laughs> <laughs> Boethius would indeed be an expensive, expensive burden. Oh man, I hadn't even thought of that. See, I also probably a pretty good uh, Scrabble word. Just remember that I've never read Boethius, so all all I can think of <laughs> is, uh, is ephemera like that. There you go. It's fairly um, short. It's 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 good read. Anyway. Oh, it is. It is. I I taught it last spring and melted my English major's brains with it. Yeah. Um. But, you know, I'm glad we had David. I'm always glad we have David here, but I'm glad we had him here today, especially because <laughs> we do have this period between the Greeks and the late Renaissance, which we're going to go next, which is where we're going to go next, Michael, uh, where there is this sense that the Promethean move is not only immoral, but pretty much unintelligible. And there yeah. are exceptions to that, but, uh, you know, it's really when we get. Uh, the rise of Milton that we get our next and our probably best known self-styled Prometheus. Uh, for me, Michael, there's so much Milton criticism buzzing around in my head because I'm writing two dissertation dissertation chapters on him uh, that it's hard for me to think about the character of Satan without Empson and Stan Fish running co- color commentary. So help <laughs> me out here, Michael. 
uh, what sort of Prometheus are we dealing with in the grand biblical epic Paradise Lost? Well, I will keep my answer short because I know you are only using me as a springboard to present your own theories about Paradise Lost, and that's because <laughs> you are the expert. But the short answer that's is awfully that, cynical. Uh, I'm, I'm a cynical person. But the, the, sh- the short answer is that we have a selfish Prometheus, right? So Aeschylus's Prometheus may have his fair share of pride, but he is operating out of this sense of a higher virtue than his duty to Zeus. So he helps the the humans because it's the right thing to do and that trumps that trumps his duty to Zeus. Not so with Milton <laughs> Satan who operates really just out of self-aggrandizement. He is willing to sacrifice all the other demons as long as he can rule even if he has to rule hell. And certainly he has no particular love for humanity. He is interested in, in them really only as a way of getting back at God. And I mean, and that's that's because, as you as you mentioned with Boethius, the Prometheus myth doesn't really make sense to a devout Christian, not without tweaking the myth, because the God of the Bible doesn't look like Zeus, mm-hmm. and certainly not the Zeus of Aeschylus. Right. Mm-hmm. Did you have Did you have more to say about that? Oh, okay, or did okay. I, did I'm I cover sorry. every possible base. <laughs> I thought I was cutting you off there, but you were just done. Oh, I'm just uh, done. Sorry, I told you to keep it brief. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that I would add is that, you know, when we get to Satan, one of the brilliant things that Milton does is when he is speaking to other characters, he speaks in very Promethean terms. You know, when mm-hmm. he talks to the demons as they are gathered there at Pandemonium, uh, he presents himself as someone who is willing to risk annihilation by God so that they can continue to wage their just war against the throne. Uh, when he talks Eve, of course, he always speaks in terms of, I'm going to help you to get knowledge that you did not have access to. And in fact, you already have the ability to reason past this simple-minded command that God has given you not to eat this fruit. Uh, so what's what's interesting to me about setting Milton and Aeschylus next to each other is that you've got a two-faced Prometheus figure, uh, whereas the Prometheus chained to the rock only ever speaks to other characters uh, you've got a Satan who speaks to other characters and speaks to himself. Mm. And, you know, I think that that is, you know, really what Milton does to this, uh, this mythical structure is, uh, like with the, with the, and, you know, of course, this is one of my dissertation chapters, you know, what happens when you give Satan interiority and the ability to think about his own origin. Uh, but, you know, this adds a depth to, the Satan figure to the extent, you know, that subsequent writers, you know, William Blake, Percy Shelley, certainly William Epson, certainly Neil Forsyth in the modern era. Uh, all, I won't even say almost, I mean, they find the moral center of the play, not in Adam and not even in God, but in Satan himself. Mm. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's fascinating literarily. And again, you know, when I am not being a Miltonist, I can say that, you know, this might be giving the devil more than his due. Uh, But when I am putting my brain into Milton mode, it's really some of the most fascinating literary moves that I think I think he made in literature. Uh, David, would you add anything to the Milton scrum? Oh, just that when you talked about Empson and Fish running color commentary, I was thinking of Staller and Waldorf. Running commentary on what text? Oh, 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 o
Anyway, sorry. I, I can't believe I missed that, David. I, <laughs> You're off the I'm show, having an Nathan. off day. My, oh, man. I, I should be. I, <laughs> You're off the island. Sorry. I'm, I'm about to ex-cathedral myself out. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but I, I, I love the way... Um, yeah, I mean, it, j- just 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 to second the motion, um, that that Milton is very much tapping into these old uh, these old patterns of heroism um, mm. in the way that he presents his Satan, and uh, I, I've I've heard, yeah, I, I I thought it was really really interesting, particularly because I was reading a translation of Prometheus Bound that was written. You know, in the gener- it was it was written by a Victorian. It was written just after the Romantics and yeah. their, mm-hmm. you know, their Blake-inspired love affair with Satan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, in, in in a lot of ways, this the, this particular translation of Prometheus Bound already sounds so much like it sounds so much like Shelley. It sounds so much mm-hmm. like Milton, right? Um, that I, I don't know for maybe for for me reading this translation, the connections between the two are that much more patent because mm-hmm. you know just just because of the way the language is used, it, it just begs for it. Anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even more modern translations of Prometheus Bound, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I mean, have that Miltonic feel, and I mean, it's it, it's one of those places where I actually have to tip my hat to Harold Bloom rather than brushing him aside <laughs> because. His uh, his idea that a really powerful text makes older text seem derivative of the new text. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I think that idea holds when you deal with this constellation of texts that I think of as surrounding Milton. Right. You know? And I mean, I I am I I do have enough historical acuity to know that this is an absurd statement, but it almost <laughs> seems as if Aeschylus was reading his Milton. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I know what you mean because that, that, that was kind of what the experience this week has been like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, David, uh, you, you mentioned the Romantics. That's a good segue. I mean, whereas Milton turned Satan into a Promethean figure, uh, the Romantics returned the favor and sort of cast Prometheus as a perfected image of Satan. Uh, talk for a few minutes about Shelley's Prometheus Unbound and what eventually happens uh, to redeem this lesser deity. Mm. Well, I guess maybe first we should spend at least at least a little bit of time um, explaining why it is that Shelley was so unhappy with the with the uh, the standard ending of the Prometheus story. Mm-hmm. Um, Prometheus Bound ends with uh, well. Basically, one of the reasons why Prometheus continues to be bound is that he has this <laughs> bit of knowledge. Yeah, he he know he knows something Zeus doesn't know. No, 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 no. Um, which is that there's there's some some prophecy, some uh, some bit of future knowledge that Zeus will, by a choice of his own, bring about his own downfall. Mm-hmm. Prometheus knows. Zeus doesn't. Uh, and Zeus, being you know worried that he is as unsteady on his throne as was his father before him, um, apparently just just wants to bully it out of Prometheus. Uh, and Prometheus, at the end of Prometheus Bound, is like, uh-uh, not talking. 
I'm just going <laughs> to sit here and suffer. You know. Well, in the uh, in the version of the story that that you know, Greek sources passed down to us. In the end, Prometheus actually does cave, and right. he shares with. Uh, he shares with, I, I guess it's Hermes, I don't think he talks to Zeus personally, that the prophecy is that the son of uh, Thetis, um, an, a, uh, a nymph, will ultimately be be greater than his father. And apparently the, the future, in the future that was seen, it is Zeus who uh, cohabits with Thetis. And as a result begets a son greater than himself who presumably does to him what he did to his dad. Mm-hmm. Um, which to me, that just looks like the wheel keeping on turning, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but apparently Zeus thinks that the wheel should stop with him. Um, as a result, Thetis is married off to, uh, a human and produces Achilles who is, um, you know, greater than his father. Um, and, and so apparently, uh, Zeus is, has managed to mess with events in such a way that he evades, uh, evades his fate. Mm-hmm. This is very unsatisfying to Percy Bysshe Shelley. Who is a thoroughgoing Platonist. Well, and also I, I, I don't know that I can, uh, I don't know that I can, uh, really differ with him that much. Mm-hmm. Having finished Prometheus Bound the way, you know, the way that it did, um, I'm like, yeah, Prometheus, just keep thumbing your nose at Zeus because he's kind of a jerk, right? <laughs> um, you know, he doesn't deserve to sit on his throne. He doesn't deserve everlasting empery. Um, so, you know, just just sit there and let whatever doom is going to come upon him happen. But apparently that doesn't happen. So Shelley sets about to write um, – what I can only think of as a fan fiction um, continuation of the story, so that uh, so that the ending is fixed, as apparently is something that 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 uh, much fan fiction ends up being when the the ending of a beloved film or book or whatever doesn't uh, doesn't satisfy the fan. They they set about to create the ending they wanted. Also, Prometheus um, and Zeus become lovers, right? Um, no, it's not that kind of fan fiction. Oh, Sorry, Mike. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, I've been reading the wrong trans- uh, the wrong version of uh, Prometheus Unbound all these years. No, that was like that was some girl named Shelley. That was. Not- <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that's all wrong, wrong Shelley. Um, anyhow, so in in this particular version, which. I, I must say I, would, I found very, very confusing, uh, mainly because Shelley has, is, is doing this, um, I guess, kind of a Blakeian thing of wanting to set up this whole cosmology along with his story in which the, logic, mm-hmm. in which the story's logic makes sense. And so he, uh, he has um, Prometheus introduced uh, towards the beginning of the play – uh, has him introduced to this sort of shadow reality. There's apparently this this weird alternate universe, um, the shadow the shadow world that mirrors um, 
the world of reality that, as, as he knows it, and in which every being has its um, has its match, has its double, and so uh, he actually summons the double, the phantasm of uh, of Jupiter, and who is apparently very peeved with <laughs> with Jupiter. Interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's because they're 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 connected in some way. He's he's I don't know. Is this, is this like the old Star Trek episodes? And so we're supposed to imagine alternate Jupiter as having a goatee or something. <laughs> um, but uh, anyhow, the, Shelley has set up a a world in which there a, a, a cosmos in which there is something beyond Zeus that can be appealed to. Yeah, and Prometheus's suffering. Um, is 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 precisely what is needed in order to make that appeal effective, and so um, you know the 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 critical I guess Shelley wish fulfillment moment is when Demogorgon, who appears to be the ultimate reality of the shadow world, actually storms Olympus by force, and Zeus sits there impotently throwing lightning at him and. Um, and just gets snatched up and pulled down into the underworld. Um, Zeus slash Jupiter is, 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 is conquered. And the, uh, Shelley describes it as, uh, like watching an eagle getting caught in a, in a hurricane. Um, <laughs> this, this moment in which the, the God who had seemed so powerful and mighty before as he soared above everyone else is caught up in the storm and, and, uh, tossed around, and then at the very end, um, Shelley presents us with uh, what appears to be a remade world where everything mm-hmm. is in order, um, everything is is good and as it should be, and all because of uh, all because of the Titan and because the Titan continued to um, because he continued to hold out because he was patient and he hoped to the end, um, you know, to suffer woe which hope thinks infinite to forgive wrongs darker than death or night to defy power which seems omnipotent to love and bear to hope till hope creates from its own wreck the thing it contemplates neither to change nor falter nor repent this like thy glory titan is to be good great joyous beautiful and free this alone life joy empire and victory and this is uh this is how the story ends according to shelley prometheus wins mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> Yay. So, yeah. I'd never read it before. It's it's big and confusing and has passages of sweeping poetry, which I got lost in. And so sometimes the narrative was not entirely clear. But yeah. that's Shelley. <laughs> yeah, that really is. That really is. And I mean, what I like so much about it is that, you know, like I said, it's this grand platonic vision in which you know, there is no actual harm that can ever be done by the heavens, right? Uh, mm. What appeared to be the unju- the injustice, pardon me, and the grand evil of Zeus actually becomes the efficient cause, if you will, of the redemption of the world. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, and, you know, I mean, in, in my mind, that is sort of the the consummate romantic vision, right? You know, it's the marriage of heaven and hell. It's the... And no, Michael, I'm not referring to your earlier plot line. Uh, it's the <laughs> idea that, <laughs> you know, the what seems to be violent force in our world eventually becomes the 
motive force that restores things. Well, is this is this not somewhat like the the well the line in Paradise Lost as 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 Satan is uh, finally able as he thinks to stand up under his own power and wade through the liquid fires of hell um, that he thinks it's by its own power but it's by this divine divine permission that yes you know mm-hmm. that that turns whatever whatever rebellion whatever deeds of intended evil he does. They just redound, you know, back, you know, back upon him to his punishment, and uh, are turned by God into, um, you know, into God's uh, service and God, and ultimately God's glory. Mm-hmm. Um, which I I think is kind of funny because Shelley seems to be doing the same thing, but I, I think it's pretty clear by the, uh, I mean, the, how often he instead of saying Jupiter, he says the almighty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, things like that. It's, 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 it's pretty clear that he's, he doesn't have necessarily in mind what Milton had in mind in those corresponding. Right. Cases. Right. It's probably something closer to what Michael described last time as Melville's outlook on the heavens. Right. Yeah. Why, why does he use the Roman names for the gods? Ah, uh, that strikes me as, I really, I'm not familiar with I the really Roman don't know. Prometheus story. Um, well, partly because a lot of, uh, a lot of 19th century versions of various things that I have read, they tended to use the Latin names instead of the Greek names, hmm. uh, maybe familiarity. I actually have a late Victorian translation of the Iliad and the Odyssey that routinely does that. Well, I mean, I guess it's like Tennyson saying Ulysses instead of Odysseus, but. Right, right. right. It seems, and it, it seems you know, well, you know, they 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 really do kind of see them as equivalent, and I guess are because that's that's probably more what the audience is familiar with. They're um, they're right. sticking to that because they also, would have learned their Latin in school rather than Greek. Yeah. Also, I'm not really sure if um, did Shelley read Prometheus and Bound uh, Prometheus Bound in Greek, or did he read a translation? Ooh, I don't know that either. Because uh, depending on the answer to that question, um, he may have already been getting the Latin names in the translation. Yeah, you're right. If, if he's reading a if he's reading a translation of Aeschylus that uses Latin names for some reason, right, mm-hmm. right. I know I know that Keats didn't get access to um, to Homer until uh, he read an English translation because Chapman. because he didn't have he didn't have Greek. Yeah, right. I, I so, don't like the, I don't, I don't like the Latin Shelley. names as much. Maybe because they're planets. And see, I, I kind of like them because they're planets. That and they tend to scan better. <laughs> yeah. I certainly well, like Vulcan I, I, better I, than Hephaestus, which I, I just learned how to pronounce uh, <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> well, I mean, making them the, the names of the planets actually does connect up um, the world that we see sensorily with the myths in the way that um, they thought they did. I mean, those planets were seen as visible manifestations of those particular gods. That's why they got their names. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, anyway. Right. Well, anyway, Michael, to take a turn from the sublime to the borderline illiterate, uh, much of the <laughs> rhetoric of the new atheists is not so much uh, self-styled as satanic as Promethean. 
Uh, talk for a few minutes, Michael, about the way that Dawkins, Hitchkins, and see, I've got Terry um, Eagleton on the, on the mind. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Dawkins, Hitchens. There we go. Bart Ehrman, whatever new atheist you want to talk about, talk about how they cast themselves as Promethean, or more generally as God's moral superior. Well, I mean, philosophers throughout the centuries have debated the Odyssey, so what I'm about to say is really not unique or new to the New Atheists. I mean, there's really nothing, of course, new about the New Atheists, except they're kind of unpleasant. They're, they're just, they, they, they just read like the same old boring Enlightenment slash logical positivist stuff <laughs> we've been hearing for, for centuries, but uh, New Atheists often talk about compassion for humanity not allowing them to b believe in God, and I think this is most clear in Bart Ehrman's God's Problem, which is one of the most aggravating books I've ever read. Not that there are not senses in which the suffering of humanity make it difficult to believe in God. It, it is that Ehrman's tone throughout that book is one of immense self-satisfaction. And, and just absolute crocodile tears for, for people who are suffering. It is it is so disingenuous that at one point I wrote a very rude word in my uh, in the margins of my copy. <laughs> um, you can also see this attitude, I think, in the New Atheist attacks on the Catholic Church of the last few years, the, the, the calls for the prosecution and imprisonment of the Pope. Uh, for this, for this sort of higher justice, uh, you know, it's it's all about the the child abuse scandals. I doubt the new atheists would frame it as stealing fire from God exactly, because of course they don't believe in God. But they certainly want to blame religion for a lot of the ills of society. So you get Hitchens' very famous, very infantile statement: "Religion spoils everything." I find these ideas to be unnuanced and boring. <laughs> um, I think Ivan Karamazov is much more interesting and a much more pure Promethean figure. So you get that wonderful chapter in the Brothers Karamazov where, where Ivan just lists off all these horrible things that have happened to children. And at the end he says, it's not your God I don't believe in, Alyosha. It's just that I respectfully return the ticket. That is Prometheus in the form of a of a atheist in the most pure fashion I can imagine. It's not mm -hmm. your God I don't believe in, I just return a ticket. The the new atheists compared to that chapter of the Brothers Karamazov are children. The the, <laughs> the, 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 the argument Ivan Karamazov makes and the in the way Dostoevsky allows it, even though it's against everything he believes, is just it's masterful and it makes it make it makes Airmen, Ditchkins, etc. look infantile. Mm -hmm. Um and not coincidentally, it's much more purely Promethean. But then, you know, I find <laughs> I find Prometheus more interesting than Diderot. Yeah. Certainly more interesting than Bertrand Russell. Mm hmm And say a little bit more about Bertrand Russell, because, I mean, really, he, more than the sort of continental atheist, is the forefather of the new atheist movement. Well, I mean, it's just, it's just logical positivism in general. I will confess I have not read that much of Bertrand Russell, so I don't want to make direct statements uh -huh. about him. Oh, okay, the, okay. Yeah, All so right. the, the logical 
the logical positive is say if you can't prove it logically it's not worth talking about essentially which i mean you mm-hmm. you definitely see the echoes of that in dawkins in particular i i remember reading an interview with him in salon where they said well what about the questions science can't answer like the meaning of life and he said well those questions aren't worth asking i mean that is logical positive right, right. and one of the great things about existentialism as a movement in the 20th century is that it reacts very directly to logical positivism and says you're full of it yeah <laughs> and incidentally that article that interview in salon is in my bookmarks that's one of my favorite things to throw at new atheists when on occasion i encounter one did you happen to hear <laughs> dawkins on start the week the most recent episode of start the week with uh no can't say that i have i, I haven't listened to that in a while what i haven't either but I, he was on there with the chief rabbi from Britain. Oh, okay, okay. And then she found uh-huh. brought up meaning, and Dawkins says, well, I believe in meaning. I believe that a bird's wings are meant to make it fly. Like, it just it's just these fantastic adventures in missing the point of what <laughs> of what religious Mint. people are talking. Meant by whom? Oh, he said, yeah. say natural selection. He said se- several times that natural selection designed us to do this and that. I mean, it's, it's yeah, right, yep, yeah, I, I know. Right. Somebody take away the language from him because he's, <laughs> he's, he's breaking it. But, but, give, us, give it back. But, but this, idea that, this idea that meaning is kind of physical use is, I mean, if, if that's what people want, let them have it. If, if that's what they want to use, if that's what they want to use the word meaning by fine, but don't talk to me because it's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Pro- proving once again the old atheists are much more interesting than new atheists. I will take I will take Nietzsche right, and Ivan right. Karamazov a hundred thousand times before I take Dawkins once. Sure, sure. And, and well, Prometheus, anyway. Prometheus oh, go for ahead. that matter. Sorry. Pro- Pro- I'll take Prometheus yeah. before I'll take Dawkins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which Prometheus isn't an atheist. He doesn't disbelieve in Zeus. Right. Well, he does challenge the fact that Zeus is God. Well, I mean, he was kind of there when Zeus took the throne, so... Right. I mean, he's kind of in a position to do that. Like, where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Prometheus like, dude, I was right next to you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is another another trope that Satan deploys in Paradise Lost, although erroneously. Yeah. He he respectfully returns the ticket, though. Yeah. (laughs) Well, ish. Respectfully-ish. Yeah. <laughs> if, our, if our readers have not read the chapter Rebellion from the Brothers Karamazov, they must. It is the greatest thing ever written. It is some fine text. Yeah, that was pretty absolute there, Michael. <laughs> I don't make a whole lot of absolute statements. I'll stand I'll stand by Rebellion being the greatest thing. Fair enough. Well, David, let's let's wrap this up by taking things around the horn. Uh I'll I'll hear from you and then from Michael. We followed the Promethean thread. Uh, through some centuries, uh, but we shouldn't close the show without returning to the original Prometheus Bound. Um, what about that old Greek Prometheus stands as notable for the modern reader, and how does Prometheus Bound fit within the education of a proper Christian humanist? Uh, first, I think Prometheus Bound is a good Uh, a good corrective to the, particularly the tendency in the Middle Ages and uh, on into, especially Renaissance drama, when Jove becomes kind of an acceptable synonym for uh, the God of the Bible. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I think it's good. It, it's good to to kind of go back and say, is Jove just the god of the Bible with a different name? Um, because you know, one 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 could get the idea that 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 was the case um, from you know from the way that that it's 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 used as a stand-in for Jehovah. Um, but I I I really think it, before reading um, or at least in ta- in tandem with reading the Book of Job, I think reading Prometheus Bound would be a great thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then along with that, uh, read passion narratives. Um, because I think, I think there's something really interesting going on here. I mean, you know, we, we can, we can talk about the contrast of the Hebrew and the Greek minds and so forth and so on. <laughs> but, um, I think it's so much better to talk about the, the, the conversation of the biblical text or the, the talk about the, the biblical text in conversation with the, with the stories that are around it. And even if, even if whoever wrote Job, you know, didn't breed Aeschylus, um, you know, that's unlikely. Um, (laughs) he lived in the same world that Aeschylus lived in. Mm -hmm. Um, he observed these real human things that Aeschylus is, is drawing Prometheus's speeches from. Um, and so, uh, I, I think it's good to set those things alongside one another and see, you know, well, how, how, do, how would, uh, if a different, if a different God is speaking out of the cloud and the thunder, um, if a different God than Zeus is the one doing the speaking, what does he say? Um, if absent, uh, if the absent God shows up, <laughs> um, what does he say? Mm-hmm. Um, but also to, to take divine suffering uh, seriously, this is, I think, probably one of the things that uh, one of the myths that Lewis was uh, thinking about, and even one of the literary texts that Lewis was thinking about when he referred to mythology as the good dreams of man, mm-hmm. um, and and suggested that there is there is a kind of prolegomena uh, to the gospel um, that is there in the longings that are expressed within. Uh, within the powerful myths and the powerful literary expressions of myths, that that there is there is something in Prometheus Bound that for which I, as a Christian, think Christ is the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you need the God who comes and endures the Passio with you and for you, and that is what you know that that is what brings the resolution at the end. That that you know the neo pagan Shelley wanted um mm-hmm. but uh i i hate that he didn't see it because as i'm reading prometheus unbound i keep thinking shelly it's there <laughs> this 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 happened this resolution thing that's that's not your wish um it's it's a real thing but he didn't see it mm-hmm. anyhow that's my take michael um i i think i think david's r- right and i think um the, the the Prometheus story can sh- show us what life under a truly unjust God really looks like, and you if you again if you read um, if you read Prometheus bound in conjunction with the Bible you you can you can see you can see how the Judeo Christian God is in many ways a solution to the problems posed. I agree with that. I, I will also say that of the 
how many plays have we read? Five? Five plays we've read for this series. I think there's the most room for compassion in Prometheus Bound. Even though it's punished, mm-hmm. Prometheus does the right thing, even if he has to suffer for it. And you see something a little similar in Antigone, except that Crayon is, is painted with a, a great deal of sympathy in Antigone, and of course Zeus is not here, so Prometheus mm-hmm. is a much more unambiguously compassionate figure here right so i i I think um i I think it's it's worth reading just to see what compassion can look like in the real world and and how it is you know in in some cases no no good deed does go unpunished (laughs) right right uh and to those good points i mean what i would add is you know when we look at prometheus bound and again we see this idea that uh suffering is happening because of goodness, uh, again, it sort of gives the lie to that thesis that, you know, our, our friend, what was it, Dave, in the Middle East, uh, was getting at, namely that there is a unified thing called the Greek mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if anything, the presence of Aeschylus alongside the Stoics uh, let us know that the Greeks, just as much as the biblical Hebrews, because they've got Proverbs right next to Job, or I guess Psalms is in the middle there, but you get my point. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, in both of those cases, what we're looking at is not a a unified code that you can lay out in systematic lines, but what we've got is a continual tension uh, between the rational assertions that follow from calling an entity God and from the experiences of living in the world that God created. And I think the fact that, you know, Job in a lot of ways is Job talking like Psalms, followed by Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar talking like Proverbs. Mm-hmm. Not exactly, but the genres are similar. Uh, reveals that, you know, just like, just like the Hebrew world, which has that tension between two literary traditions that have their own ideologies as well as their own stylistic traits. Likewise, within the Greek tradition, you've got Aeschylus and you've got the Stoics. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's one of those things that, uh, again, you know, encourages us to dig deeply, to uh, take a good long drink from the Greeks rather than dismissing them as this unified and ultimately dismissible singular worldview. Well, at any rate, guys, uh, I want to thank you both for having a good conversation today. Uh, do we know what our next topic is, David? Well, um, I don't know if you guys remember it, but the world's supposed to end tomorrow. Right. So, so if you're listening to this, listeners, it didn't. Yes. Because right. um, the world was supposed to end four days ago, but if the earliest you're hearing this. <laughs> right. Right, but we're we are speaking we are speaking to you from the past. We're speaking to you from October the twentieth. I know, ghosts of podcast past. Right from back um, when the world existed. Yes, yes, a voice from before <laughs> the apocalypse. Um, so that so that's actually uh, I, I thought that would be kind of a fun a fun riffing off of uh, apocalypses, literary apocalypses. How's the how's the world supposed to end? Um, Not with a bang, various... but a whimper. Hey, we were gonna do that one. <laughs> um, but also, uh, you know, what it, what is life in the last days? Um, and you know, 
how should we then live and all those sorts of things. Will, will Tina Turner be making an appearance? Um, well, I, I, I think if we're going to talk about the apocalyptic, the post-apocalyptic is something we should talk about. So in our post-apocalyptic episode, we'll talk about the ends of worlds that could have been and so forth. And it'll cool. go up on All Saints Day. Yeah. There you S- go. Sweet. <laughs> Well, at any rate, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, our email is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. If you want to read some of what we write, it's at christianhumanist.org on the old internet. Uh, As always, we always welcome people going over to iTunes, giving us a rating. The more stars, the better, and writing a brief review there. If you've got blogs, keep linking to us. We love it when people write about their favorite episodes and other such things. We even love it when people write about things that we sort of swing and miss on. Uh, just because it gratifies our egos. We've been recognized in the world. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer, on behalf of David Grubbs, saying, let your faith, no, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>